Make your way over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at uh, verses 3 through 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. We're taking a look at spiritual warfare in the Bible, and uh, we're uh, in our third study, and right now we're sort of concentrating on uh, the Christian and our, the weapons of our warfare, things like that. We'll get around to uh, more of the what people consider the sensational scriptures, you know, talking about the devil and uh, demons and things like that. But uh, right now we're in a fight, and we need to know a little bit about what we ought to be doing. Luke Skywalker thought he was ready to face Darth Vader. Remember that? You all Star Wars fans? <laughs> Ignoring the warnings of both Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda that he was heading into a trap, Luke confronted Vader only to have his hand cut off and hear the iconic words, I am your father. Although the lightsaber was an elegant weapon for a more civilized age, Luke's real weapon would be something totally unexpected. In their second confrontation, it wasn't until he abandoned his weapon altogether and was willing to lose his life that he defeated the enemy. Now, I'm not suggesting that Star Wars is in any way a Christian allegory. And I probably wouldn't have used this introduction if Dave Hunt was still alive. (laughs) The scenes I just referenced are a common literary device. Uh, You see it in a lot of different movies and a lot of uh, different books to emphasize that we can go off half-cocked thinking we are proficient with our weapons. Spiritual warfare can be a lot like that. We can go off half-cocked if we don't understand the weapons of our warfare. You may have heard Christians talk about spiritual mapping started with John Dawson's book, Taking Our Cities for God, published back in 1989. The book's subtitle is How to Break Spiritual Strongholds. The author taught that demonic forces block the gospel. His thesis, the power and influence of the principalities and the powers over a city, must be broken before the gospel will significantly advance. Spiritual mapping involves some or all of the following techniques. The history of the city must be studied and understood. Certain key questions must be answered. For example, how and why did the city begin? Who were the founders and what were their intentions and spiritual condition? What presently characterizes the city or what is it known for? The latest demographic study of the city should be analyzed. And the history of race relations must be studied along with any traumatic event the city has experienced like an earthquake or a flood. Then with proper research, the demonic spirit or spirits in control of the city can be identified and thus their power can be broken by the use of some appropriate spiritual effort. For instance, if a city is characterized by pride, then the Christian's response ought to be humility. Now, I actually thought humility was supposed to characterize us all the time, so I'm not exactly sure what that means. And all that sounds great. It even sounds spiritual. But I'm suggesting it's more like Luke Skywalker getting his hand chopped off because we're going into a warfare situation half-cocked. Let me give you two reasons why spiritual mapping is not part of our spiritual warfare, and this will build up to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The first real reason is that it is simply not taught in the Bible. There's one clear text that describes what we would call territorial spirits or demons. It's in the book of Daniel. We're going to study it in subsequent weeks by itself. So for now, I'll just give you a brief overview. Most of you are familiar with this scene. It's in Daniel chapter 10. The angel Gabriel tells Daniel that he was sent to give him a message, yet it took him 21 days to get to Daniel. 
because he was restrained by a demon called the Prince of Persia. He finally broke through, but only with the help of Michael, the archangel who was dispatched to help him in this struggle. It's interesting because Daniel wasn't doing any mapping before this demon was revealed to him. After the demon was made aware, uh, or after he was made aware of this territorial demon, the angel just flat out told Daniel what was going on. He said, there's a territorial demon, the prince of Persia, who is uh, hindering my coming to you with this amazing prophecy. After Daniel heard that, it had absolutely no effect on how he prayed whatsoever. He, he didn't pay attention at all to the fact that there was a territorial demon uh, there. He just left that to the angels, and he continued to pray for repentance and uh, for God to restore his people. No cities were set free. No mass evangelism took place. I'm not being cynical, just factual. One scholar summarized this, and he said, that the Bible attests to the existence and activity of territorial spirits does not constitute grounds for thinking that Christians can or should attempt to identify them and the areas they control. The presence and influence of the princes were disclosed to Daniel, but not because he sought to discover their identity or functions, nor is there any evidence that Daniel prayed for their defeat. Proponents of spiritual mapping run the risk of indulging in the sort of speculation that Scripture consistently avoids." Back in the late 80s, uh, I actually got a telephone call from, uh, it was one of the dreaded phone calls. That you, you, when you're in Calvary Chapel, you don't want to get a phone call from Chuck Smith ever uh, or his associate, Roger Wing. And so I, I'm sitting there minding my own business, and I find out that Roger Wing is on the phone. I thought, this is it. It's over. <laughs> and Roger's a really nice guy, and he says, hey, Gene, you know, I got this report that at one of your Bible studies, you guys are teaching spiritual mapping. And I said, well, Roger, I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. I said, right now, we don't have any home Bible studies, and I don't know what spiritual mapping is. I didn't. And so it, anyway, he ended up telling me it was a couple in our church that was having their own home Bible study, which is fine, and they were showing a video about spiritual mapping uh, to the folks that were coming there. And, um, you know, and so I, I told her, I said, hey, well, I will, uh, not sponsoring that, no, nothing, but I'll call them and I'll let them know that it's bogus, you know, and, and which I did. And then later, one of the sections on the video, I watched it afterwards, one of them talked about the city of Hemet and how that they, all the churches had got together and how they had prayed, you know, done this mapping and prayed for Hemet and, you know, and how there was this great revival breaking out. So I, I called Gary, who's the pastor of Calvary Chapel of Hemet, and I said, hey, what, what's going on with this? What, what's the deal? Are you part of this? And he goes, he goes, that is just all lies. He goes, yes, a bunch of pastors got together, and yes, they prayed for our city. He says, but I'm also a chaplain with the police department. We've never had more crime. Uh, evangelism is not on the uh, grow. You know, none of the churches are growing like that. He goes, they're just absolutely making it up uh, and putting it in that video. And I said, so, so this, is, this is the kind of, so, you know, we sit here and we think, well, I would never get into that, but it, it just happens. People think, oh, that, man, that sounds great. Yeah, uh, wow, they're territorial spirits. Well, then we should do something about that, right? God must reveal that to us for a reason so that we can do battle and tear down their strongholds. And, and then you go to Daniel, and Daniel's like, wow, that's really interesting. But I think what we need to do is pray for repentance and revival 
because we're about to go back into the land. And so it's very interesting uh, how easy it is to be drawn into these kinds of things. A second reason we don't want to get caught up in this kind of thing is because it comes from a misunderstanding of the meaning of the word strongholds in 2 Corinthians 10. Now, let's read those verses. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, I like the sound of pulling down strongholds, don't you? Uh, I mean, it, it, sounds, it sounds mighty and it, it sounds robust. It sounds like a, a great thing to do as a Christian. The trouble is we tend to think of a stronghold as if it's a rat's nest of demons led by a more powerful demon and that we need to make an assault on their territory and that's not it by a long shot. Paul defines for us what he meant by strongholds in verse 5. He says they are arguments and then qualifies them as every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So he's not talking about demons, not directly, but indirectly. He's talking about arguments. William MacDonald said, Paul saw himself as a soldier warring against the proud reasonings of man, arguments which oppose the truth. The true character of these arguments is described in the expression, against the knowledge of God. It could be applied today to the reasonings of scientists, evolutionists, philosophers, and religionists who have no room for God in their scheme of things. The apostle was in no mood to sign a truce with these. Rather, he felt committed to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. MacDonald mentioned evolution. It's an argument that seeks to explain origins without any need for God and his creation. Mormonism and every other false religion is an argument against God as he is revealed in the Bible. These arguments, lame though they may be, hold non-believers captive. Non-believers always think that they are the free thinkers who have thrown off the bondage of believing in God. You know this to be true. When you're at work or among unbelievers, they scorn you, they laugh at you because of all the things you can't do. You, you know, you just can't have any fun because you're stuck in your religion and, you know, God is, is holding you back, you know, from doing all the kinds of things that they can do. And, and they, they think that they, uh, you know, that, that religion, of course, you're not religious, you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, but they think of it as a religion. They think that belongs to the primitive caveman era and that now we have so many scientific understandings of the world like evolution. Uh, of course, they've never really looked at anything or studied anything. Uh, they just believe the arguments of men, and that's what Paul is talking about. And in some cases, the arguments are actually come from demons. They're demonic. They're doctrines of demons. Joseph Smith received his supposed revelation from an angel of light, Moroni, who was the devil, uh, you know, from our point of view. And so there are some people that... Uh, Carl Jung is another one. He used to have conversations with a demon. His name was Philemon. Uh, not the Philemon of the Bible, but the demon Philemon. Philemon the demon. <laughs> and, and that's where he got a lot of his, uh, you know, psychoanalysis from. The arguments are the doctrines of demons and every high thing, therefore, sounds like a wall behind which the non-believer is actually held prisoner and captive. And so I like to think of evolution as, a, as an argument 
uh, uh, you know, a false argument, a doctrine of demons behind which men are imprisoned and they don't even know it because they're so ignorant of the truth. And so the question now becomes, if you start to see the world that way, how do we cast down those strongholds? If, if that's the problem, if that, there are these arguments that are the doctrines of demons that are holding people captive, they're behind these high walls, these barricades, how do we tear that down? Let me further qualify the question by using the words we find in this text, which are very important. How do we pull down these strongholds in a way that brings every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ? It's not enough to just tear down the stronghold. It also, you, you haven't saved the person unless they can bring every thought into obedience to the captivity of Christ, or into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Well, it seems to me at least, and this is just, you know, from thinking about it, that there are three common approaches to the pulling down of strongholds. It's just, you know, what, what we would see happening in the Christian realm. Three common approaches to the pulling down of strongholds. One of them I'm going to call legislation, although that might not be the best descriptor. What I mean is that we try to keep laws on the books or pass new ones that are in line with the truth that is taught in the Bible. Now, let me say I see nothing wrong with this, and there is much value in it. For example, Prop 8, the 2008 California ballot initiative that established that only marriages between a man and a woman would be recognized in the Golden State. The voter-approved amendment to the state's constitution overturned a California Supreme Court ruling from the same year that had granted same-sex couples of the state a constitutional right to marry. Now, unfortunately, United States District Court Judge Vaughn Walker, who is an uh, openly homosexual, overturned Prop 8 back in 2010. Many people don't know that the folks who really led the Prop 8 initiative were Calvary Chapel of Chino Hills by, uh, and their pastor, Jack Hibbs, as he was stirred up by the Lord to do something uh, at that moment in time. We live in a society governed by laws, and we should exercise our rights as citizens to see laws passed that reflect God's government, or at least a godly government. You've probably heard someone say, whenever you as a Christian bring something up, you can't legislate morality. And on one level, that's just not true. Laws are the very means by which we do, in fact, legislate morality. We tell people in our laws what we consider right or wrong. We have laws against murder. Why? Because murder is wrong. And so we legislate against it so that people don't murder each other. And so that's what we do all the time. But on a spiritual level, laws cannot change the heart. And I would say this, no legislation can bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You can pass a law banning same-sex marriage, and the next day people who have same-sex attraction aren't going to say, okay, we'll change, because that's the law. It has nothing to do with changing the heart. And so that's what I mean. I, I have nothing against legislation. I think sometimes folks have the impression because we talk more about the gospel than we do about legislation that we're against that or we think it's foolish. Not at all. It's just, it's limited in its scope. A second common approach to the pulling down of strongholds, again, a really good one, we would call debate or in the Christian realm, we would call it apologetics. 
It is to meet the arguments of the enemies of the gospel head on with the word of truth. And I like this. Don't you like watching a good debate between a Christian and a non-Christian over an issue? Creation science would be probably the prime example of this. Believers who are scientists seek to have creation taught side by side with evolution or who debate prominent evolutionists. They're to be commended. Creation always decimates evolution, and nothing in the Bible contradicts good science. And that's why so often uh, they won't even, uh, they meaning non-believers at the intellectual level, they won't even allow these debates to take place because they, they, they don't want to give credibility to a Christian point of view. Who was it? Was it Bill Nye, the science guy that debated Ken Ham recently? And, and the scientific community, the non-believing scientific community, was angry at him because he was giving credibility to the creation viewpoint when they just want to ignore it. But when you, even as a, I, I know your mind is darkened when you're not a believer, but as a Christian, when you watch these things, you think, man, I, I feel sorry for Bill Nye. I feel sorry for these guys talking to Ken Ham and Henry Morris Jr. And all. I mean, th- these guys, they, they even, even good scientists, honest scientists who don't believe in the Lord are saying, well, evolution can't be true. We all know that now. It just cannot be true on several different levels, and yet we continue to uh, have unbelievers hide behind this argument, behind these barricades. And so, again... Please notice, winning a debate does not by itself bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ because the problem is with the heart. Apologetics might clear the way if a person is sincere, but it is not the way of obtaining the objective. And so you need to have good apologetics, good arguments. You need to be able to give an answer to every man, a reason of the hope that is in you. Uh, You know, people do have arguments, and sometimes they're sincere, and they're really seekers. Uh, but a debate by itself, apologetics by itself, is not the way. The third approach, there may be others, but the third approach to the pulling down of strongholds is just pure evangelism. It's the one, it's the only one that affects the heart and renders it possible for the saved person to then bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. If you were saved later in life, you had the experience of having to pretty much relearn everything that you had learned because you recognized that it was false, that they were from false premises, false arguments by non-believers who hated God and hated the gospel, and you had to work that out. And in some cases, it was kind of tough. I know when I first became a Christian, having studied psychology at the University of California, Riverside, I wanted to hold on to that and bring it over into biblical Christianity, like a lot of believers have done and have written books about that. But it just doesn't, it doesn't add up. It doesn't, you can't mix. It's like oil and water. They don't really mix. You can shake them up, but a few minutes later, they're, they're apart again. Uh, and so, um, you know, you have to rethink. You have to bring your thinking into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So, and isn't that what we do when we read God's Word? You read something? I mean, you know, we still have this experience. Obviously, none of us know everything, and every, every time you read the Bible, you get something new out of it, but especially when you're a young Christian, you read something, you go, wow, really? I didn't know that was in the Bible. 
wow, is that what God believes about this? Is that what I'm supposed to think? And then you adjust your thinking. You change the way you think because of what God says. That's what it means to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And that can only happen after you get saved, after you are born again, after your heart is affected by the gospel. Ultimately, then, the weapons of our warfare are the usual but extraordinary spiritual disciplines like prayer and the proper use of the Word of God as a spiritual sword to discern between the soul and the spirit. And when we're talking about spiritual warfare, it's easy to get overly sensational and to buy into something like spiritual mapping because it seems more exciting. I mean, even if you look at Daniel, you think it would have been more exciting for Daniel to have gotten a prayer group together and, and, you know, to try and tear down the stronghold of the prince of Persia and all of that. But instead, Daniel just continued on the same course that he'd always been on as a spiritual man, as a righteous man, seeking the Lord for his people. And so uh, that's the way we really tear down strongholds, which are arguments, is by evangelism. Now, we can certainly show how societies who have devalued marriage have crumbled, and we can easily prove evolution cannot be true, but none of that delivers anyone from behind these high walls. We must approach this spiritually so that the Holy Spirit can convict the hearts of nonbelievers of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come and be saved. And so I say, let's legislate Let's debate, but foremost, let's pray and share the word, which is the power of God unto salvation. And there, there is a tendency, my opinion only, my, my observation only, there is a tendency for Christians to want to do more, and that usually means legislation or debating or something like that, um, because we feel like prayer and the application of the word and evangelism are are either not enough or they're failing. We seem to be losing ground in society. We seem to not be gaining ground. Um, but um, we, the ground we want to gain is the, is the heart. And we want to get a person into a place where they're able to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And in order for that to happen, they have to be born again. And so we're going to concentrate on the gospel and then do these other things as well, but with the gospel first and foremost. Amen?